0: Hey, good morning again, Redeemer. It's good to see you. If you're tiptoed in a little late, uh, welcome to the house of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to uh, Psalm 107, Psalm 107. This is book five of the Psalter. The Psalms are divided into five different books, so this is the last one. And as we'll look at a little later, uh, King David sort of recedes to the background in books three and books four and then he surfaces again in book five. It's as if the arranger of the Psalms is reminding us that uh, there is a king who's coming of David who will bring these things in the fifth book of the Psalms to pass for God's people. and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straightway till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down in the sea to ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The Lord turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow seeds and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, the Lord pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless ways. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all the wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we again turn our hearts to your word, and we would pray that we would be hearers and doers of your word. As this psalm ends, it ends with, Let those who are wise attend to the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what you want of us this morning, that we would see that the steadfast love of the Lord is real and present and powerful, and it is directed to us and for us. Make us a people, Lord, who respond to your steadfast love in a way that honors and glorifies your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we do premarital counseling here at Redeemer, uh, one of my favorite sessions is the one on love languages. And imagine uh, two chairs here, imagine I have a, the, the, a soon to be female who's about to marry this guy that's sitting over here. And a few weeks before the wedding, we'll have this, uh, this, this talk about love. And we use uh, this book by Gary Chapman, and it's called The Five Languages of Love. And Dr. Chapman proposes this. One, that we're wired for love. We're wired to receive it. We're wired to give it. And the challenge in marriage, and I would push this a bit further and say it's not just marriage, it's in any relationship, whether we're talking about loving parents or siblings or children or friends, right? Uh, he makes this case that, that, that we tend to receive or feel loved in one of five languages. And so here are the, the languages that, that Dr. Thompson uses. He says, some of us feel love with words of affirmation. Others, it's physical touch, and still others, it's acts of service, and others, it's quality time, And the fifth would be the giving of gifts and he makes the case that that most of the time when couples are getting married their love languages are different and so the the female over here she might love quality time right man i just want him to keep a date night and to come home at the same time and to crowd out every other thing he don't gotta buy me no bins he ain't gotta buy me this big ring I just want time, right? Time. And this guy over here, right? His love language may not be quality time, right? He may crave or need words of affirmation. Pastor El, when I get out there and cut the yard and hold it down in the crib, I just need her to notice me and I'm putting in work, right? And he makes the case that the hard thing in marriage is learning What makes the other person feel loved, and cared for, and present, and known? Now, we're made for love, we're made for it, but we're made in the image of God. And therefore, as we have conversations around love, it cannot just stay on the horizontal plane. If we're made in the image of God, and we believe that God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit have existed in a loving community forever, that God didn't need to create us. There was nothing that he lacked in the Trinity, that the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, the Spirit loved the Father, the Spirit loved the Son, and what they did when our tri- uh, triune God made us in his image, he made us with his longing. However, What we need, in addition to earthly love, is to know that we're loved by God. And that's what this passage is about. This phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord, is repeated six times. You notice how the song begins. Look at how it begins. It begins, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look at how it ends in verse 43. Turn over in your Bibles. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And then what you're going to see nestled every, at, at each of these seams in the psalm is this, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. That shows up four times. Verse 8. Verse 15, verse 21, and verse 30. That's what the psalm is about. It's about God putting his steadfast love on display so that his people would see it and savor it and love it and long for it and respond to it in a manner that is fitting the one who is loving us. And that word for steadfast love, it's it's the Hebrew word hesed. It's not merely an emotion or feeling, but it involves action on behalf of someone who is in need. It's a sense of love and loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate behavior I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones writes about this in her children's book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, God's love of his children is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever type of love. He will move heaven and earth to be near them always. Whatever happens, whatever costs him, he will love them. So this psalm is about the steadfast love of the Lord. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. The steadfast love of the Lord steadies the lives of those he loves. It steadies us. Because he is steadfast, it steadies our lives. And what this psalm is going to invite us to do in light of this reality, it's going to, he's after evoking a response from us. If his steadfast love is true, then what does it mean as we live our lives? It means that we're going to be those who cry out for it. And we're going to be those who thank him for it. So let's look at the first point. I want to show you that, that the unsteady and unlovely stretches of the journey, right? Unsteady and unlovely stretches of the journey. When you look at this psalm, there is a beautiful shape to it. And you can see, here's the shape. Verses 1 through 3, there's a general call for the redeemed to give thanks. And then the psalmist gives us four scenes. These are like four pictures in Israel's history when, when, when things were unsteady and unlovely. So you get scene 1, and scene 1 is going to be verses 4 through 9. Then you get scene 2, that's verses 10 through 16. You get scene 3, 17 through 22. Then you get scene 4, and that's verses 23 through 32. And then you get this closing argument. If God has acted this way in these scenes in years past, here is what we in the present can deduce about this God. And so that's how the Psalm ends in verses 33 through 43. So let's look at scene one, look at verses four through nine. It says, some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. They were hungry and they were thirsty and their souls fainted within them. This could be a picture of Israel traveling through the wilderness between uh, their exodus in, uh, out of Egypt and into the promised land. It could be an allusion, right, to when they were exiled the second time out of God's land and, and taken and their temple destroyed. It also could be an allusion to maybe what's happening in Deuteronomy 32 where some of the exact languages used. And this is in Moses' song. This is Moses' song, where he's reflecting on the goodness of God to Israel as a nation. And he uses this language, the Lord found Jacob, and I think he's speaking about Jacob the person who would eventually become the people of Israel. The Lord found Jacob in a desert land in a howling waste of the wilderness and the Lord encircled and cared for him and kept him the apple of his eye. If he's talking about Jacob and the beginnings of Israel, you know what's going on in Genesis 28? That's when Jacob is running from his brother and he's not yet made it to see Laban and and, and he is poor. And, And in this dream, the Lord shows up and there's this ladder with these angels ascending and descending. And then Jacob prays this prayer. He says, if the Lord will give me a place to go and if he will give me bread and give me clothing and let me live to see my father again, then the Lord shall be my God. So it's almost like if he's talking about Jacob, that Jacob is in a hard space. He's running for his life, and he's poor, and he doesn't have food, and he's praying like, Lord, I don't have anywhere to go. If you show up, and if you protect me and clothe me and provide for me, then you will not just be the God of my fathers. You'll be my God. That maybe he's talking about that. That's scene one. Scene two and three, I want to combine it and deal with them at the same time. Here's why. Because in scene one, there is no inclination that that they're wondering for food and and shelter because of sin. But when you get to scene two and three, you'll notice this refrain, look at it with me. Look at 107 and look right there at verse uh, 11. This is scene two. So some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Well, why, Pastor L? Why were they in darkness, and why were they in the shadow of death? Why were they prisoners? Look at verse 11. For, or because, they had rebelled against the words, plural, of of God. And so it reads as if the Lord sent prophets to them. The Lord sent his words, and what they did in that scene is to spurn the counsel of the Lord. Therefore, they were prisoners. Look at verse 12, the Lord bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down and with none to help. And so what's happening in that scene is they're rebelling and God himself is disciplining, which is the same thing that's happening in verse 17. And some of them were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, they suffered affliction. They were so toe up, they didn't even want to eat food. They were so grieved by what was happening around them that they lost their appetites. In other words, they're in unsteady and unlovely stretches of the journey. And then you get to scene four, which I think is a little nugget that we ought to mind a little bit, that some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters and they saw the deeds of the Lord's, his wondrous works in the deep. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up waves from the sea, the waves mounted to heaven, and these mariners, right, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and all of their wisdom was swallowed up. Who is that about? One of my Old Testament seminary professors said that by and large, Hebrews were not mariners. They were not seafaring people by and large. Go read Jonah chapter one, go read uh, Ezekiel 27. And he makes a biblical theological case that by and large the Hebrews were afraid of water. You think about in the beginning, the waters were chaotic. You think about Noah and the destruction of the world with the flood. You think about Israel walking through the sea and Pharaoh and his army were chasing them and he destroyed them. You think about Jonah who gets on a ship avoiding uh, going to Nineveh, trying to go to Tarshish. Like you, I mean, you just, you, you get all of this. And so he makes this case that, that when you read these passages and you see these mariners in these ships that more than likely what we're reading is God showing up to those outside of Israel. This could be a recounting of Jonah's story where the mariners on the ship who worshipped other gods finally met the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they were bowing and crying out to other gods when this storm came and their gods were impotent and futile and could do nothing. And it was when they told Jonah and well, Jonah, why don't you cry out to your God? And if you cry out to your God, then maybe your God will listen. In other words, what you start to see in this passage, I think, is God saying, hey, those loved by me, it ain't just Israel. Those loved by me, it's those mariners those who would, would sail the seas, I'm i going to raise up storms even for those who don't know me and aren't loved by me, who think they're not loved by me. I'm going to raise up a storm in their life, and I'm going to make them bow the knee to me. In other words, I think that's what the psalmist is doing. He's showing us whether you're sailors or Gentiles, whether you presently know God or not, whether you presently profess faith or not, here's what he's saying. There are stretches of the journey that will be unlovely and that will be unsteady. Maybe it's like Jay-Z. When he was growing up, he says, why it's sunny outside, but it always rained on Jay. He's talking about growing up without his dad and he sees what every other family has around him. And he's like, dad, why is it always raining on us? Maybe you feel like that this morning. Maybe you look around at your friends and their lots, and you wonder, Lord, why does it always rain on me? You're like those in the first scene. You're looking for shelter, you're looking for necessities. Maybe your future is unpredictable and you don't know what you'll be doing in a year or two years or three months and you're afraid and you're worried. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel imprisoned, imprisoned by your own sin. Maybe you're worshiping idolatry and maybe covetousness has its grab on you. Maybe there are too many Amazon packages showing up at your door because you're chasing meaning and things out there in the world and it is out of control. Or maybe it's sexual sin or unhealthy desires. And you thought you could get over this and conquer this. And you're realizing right now that you're in shackles and you're in chains. Or, or maybe it's drinking and alcohol and you think it's under control, but you're realizing that you are in shackles and you are in bondage, that something else is imprisoning you and stealing your joy Or maybe you're not a believer. And there are things going on in your life right now, and even Ray Charles can see that you are making difficult and ungodly choices. And God is brewing this storm in your life right now because he loves you. You see, I think what this Psalm does is it shows us that God's people will enter these unsteady and unloving situations. Now, the second point, what's the most important thing to do when those unsteady stretches of the journey come? That's the second point. What's the the most important thing to do when these unsteady stretches come? As mentioned, these are four different scenes, but there's a common response that the psalmist puts before us in each scene. And before I get at what that is, I I think it's appropriate to to, to say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, right, if you are, 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 are struggling with unhealthy sexual sin, I'm not saying, hey, you don't need accountability, or you don't need a community of people to walk with you, or you don't need software on devices to help you guard your heart. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying, if you're the one in your marriage that's blowing finances, that, that, that you, I'm not saying that you don't need a financial planner. Or maybe someone else in the marriage needs to handle the finances. I'm not saying that that, that earthly wisdom, that skill to navigate life is unimportant. It's very important. It's how we make it. It's how we persevere. But what I I do want to say is it's not ultimate. And it's not the first posture. What you see in this passage is a crying out to God. If you underline in your Bibles, underline 6A, 13A, 19A, and 28a. And here is what you see. No matter which scene you're in, what do they have in common? It says, and then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. And then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. And then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. They were at their wit's end. This wasn't pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. As a matter of fact, when you look at scene four, look at verse 27, it says, the mariners reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. In other words, human willpower and human wisdom and human skill was not the reason they were able to make it to safe Haven. The reason they made it to safe Haven was because they bowed the knee and cried out to God. They exhausted human limitations and realized that there was one person who could act, one person who could intervene, one person who could deliver. And this is what I think the psalmist is saying. It needs to be our knee-jerk reaction in unsteady stretches of the journey. So when I was a campus pastor, we took our students to Memphis for a core group retreat. And uh, we did it at a camp. I forgot the name of the camp, but we did it at a camp and we were clearly told, do not park your cars on the grass, right? One of our students had a big old Jeep and she decided to park her Jeep on the grass and not just like in the grass. So here's like a pathway, there's a hill and, and, and Ashley parked her Jeep like right down here in the hill. And here's the problem, it rained that night. And all that water rolled down into the bottom of the hill which is where her truck was. And so we got up the next morning to go to church and guess what, Ashley is stuck. And so I get out there, and, and, and 18 to 21 year olds, they do what 18 to 21 year olds do. I get out there, and Ash is in her car, and she's crunked the car up, and she's like, Jean, Jean, Jean. And you know what happened? It just got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into more trouble. And then they did what college students do. Well, let's get four or five college students to get behind the Jeep and push over the Jeep while Ashley gives it gas. Zoom, zoom, zoom. And now all of a sudden it's deeper and these four dudes, they all got mud on them. So by the time they come get me, I'm like, hey, can we just call the camp director and see if he got a toe strap or something? And so we get a toe strap and we hook the toe strap on the front of the car And we started to pull using the toe strap. But here's the thing. That's how I think some of us act when we get into the unpleasant and unstable and unlovely situations. We revert to being 18-year-old Ashley. And here's what we want to do. We got to do it we got to get out. We got to get out. We got to figure our own way out. And then, well, let me call some homeboys who my same age. You're going to give me the same advice, and we're going to get behind here, and we all going to get muddy, and we're missing this fact that what we need to do is call on our daddy and cry out for help. You see, I'm convinced that we, we are more like that. And that's what this Psalm is trying to get us to see is when you go through unsteady stretches of the journey, resist the temptation to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, resist the temptation to think that people just like you, if they're not telling you first and foremost to fall on your face and reach out to the Lord, they're giving you bad advice. What this Psalm says is that when those moments come, we cry out to our father. So we had the privilege of keeping our godsons a few weeks ago, and we had them for several days. And you know our kids, they're, they're teenagers, preteen. And I was just like, man, I just didn't know little kids talk a lot, like talk that much. My kids can go to the restroom. They can bathe themselves. They can fix their own food. They can, they can lock the house up and set the alarm. They can buckle themselves up. I just kind of took all of that for granted. And when you got like little kids, Uncle L, can I have this? And Uncle L, can we do that? And Uncle L, I'm ready for a bath. And Uncle L, can you buckle me up? And Auntie Karen, can we do this? And I was like, man, did our kids like talk that much? And then it hit me. I had to look at my godson and say, Thank you for pointing me to Jesus. Here's why. When Jesus says, Unless we become like children, we will not inherit the kingdom, I think what he's getting at is unless we learn that posture that we can go to daddy all day long. Daddy, I need you. Daddy, I need you. Jesus, can you deliver me? See, I'm convinced that we don't just need this posture of crying out to God for capital S salvation I think when we're really, really honest, we encounter so many needs of small salvations. And what this psalm is inviting us to do is to get in the habit of crying out, of going to the throne. This is something that Jesus Christ has won for us. That we don't have to go through this world carrying it and trying to figure it out and relying on our own strength. That because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, we have divine and instant access to the throne of grace. And what the psalm is saying, Christian, be in the habit. There is an invitation that when you need these small deliverances in your life, cry out to your daddy like a small child. And here's the promise. Here's the promise. God will hear and God will act. Did you notice in that same verse, those same verses I had you underline, if you write in your Bibles, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Do you notice the phrase that's under it? And he delivered them from their distress 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 and And what you start to see in this Psalm is, no matter the scene, No matter the time, no matter the reason that life has become unhealthy, unlovely, unsteady, that those who cry out to the Lord, he delivers. So what did he do for those in scene one who were hungry and thirsty? It says, for he satisfies a longing soul And the hungry soul he fills with good things. What did he do for those who did not have a city? He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. What did he do for those who sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons? It uses the same language. He brought them out of the darkness and out of the shadow of death. And he burst their bonds apart for he shatters the doors of bronze and cut into the bars of iron what did he do for those who were in their sinful ways who incurred iniquity and affliction and who loathed food what did he do look at verse 22 and let them now offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in the songs of joy one scholar says that that offering of thanksgiving that was consummated with a meal where the one offering that offering would sit down with the priest and the priest and the offerer would sit down and have a meal in other words the one who did not want food, who loathed food is now being fed. The one who didn't have a city now has a city. The ones who was on the ship and the waves were coming, what happened to them? It says that the waves retreated and he brought them to their desired haven. This is the steadfast love of the Lord showing up. This is the Lord steadying their lives when it was unsteady. And I love that this isn't just true for them. This is true for you and I. Our God turns rivers into deserts. Our God turns springs of water into thirsty ground. Our God can make a way out of no way. Our God can humble the prideful. Our God can lift up the lowly. Now, why is this true for you and I Christian? What's the incentive? What's the proof that when we cry out, God will either steady our situations or he will steady you and I? What's the proof? You know what the proof is. It's Jesus. It's King Jesus that long ago in many times and many ways God spoke to us by the prophets in these final days he speaks to us by his son and so when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene What you see in Jesus is an exact representation of the heart of the Father. And what you see in Jesus when those who were homeless and clothless and foodless, what did Jesus do? He fed them and made them a banquet in the presence of many. What did Jesus do when he went in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach good news and to proclaim liberty to those who are captives, liberty to those who are oppressed. In other words, what you have in Jesus, Jesus is saying in me and by my spirit and through your union with me in the gospel, I am the one who breaks chains. I am the one who tears down strongholds. I am the one who can get you out of that thing right there that seems to be tormenting your soul. It's me. You need a Messiah and it is I. And what you learn about Jesus is that boat scene Sounds a lot like that boat scene with his own disciples, doesn't it? When the waves came and the storm came, it was Jesus who spoke to the storm. Peace, be still. And it was. And it left the disciples with this question, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. And Jesus says, let me tell you who I am. I'm the one who will have no place to lay my head. I'm the one who is building a city for you. I'm the one who will stay in prison and let Barabbas go free, that I might die in your place and bend the heart of God towards you forever. I'm the one who has all power to tell seas to calm down, who has all power to summon legions of angels. And what I'm gonna do on the cross, I'm not going to use any of that power to convenience myself. What I'm going to do on the cross is to lay it down that I might absorb anything and everything that you've done, that the Father might look towards you with love and faithfulness now and forever. you have in Jesus, Christian, is the king who manifests the steadfast love of the Lord. If you doubt the steadfast love of the Lord, Jesus says, look at me and look at what I've done and look at who I am. I want to close with these two illustrations to show you that the steadfast love of the Lord steadies the lives of his people first we do a testimony service here and it's one of my favorites it's when we give members of the body the microphone and it's not to bring glory to ourselves it's to testify in the congregation of the saints how the lord has been faithful and has worked there's a couple in our church and they've asked me to let you guys know how God has been kind to them. And their name, they're the basses. And so when, when, when COVID hit, their son, little Kevin, um, was diagnosed with MISC, And it was nearly fatal. And Kevin called me, and he's crying. He says, Pastor L, I think I'm going to lose my son. And he says, man, can y'all start praying for me? I dropped off some anointing oil in his mailbox. I said, brother, go anoint your son in the hospital. And we're going to have a Zoom prayer meeting. And in the hospital, he anointed his son. And the elders got on Zoom with doctors in the room. And we cried out, To Jesus. And Jesus acted. The next day, family, his son began to improve. And if you ask them right now, you know what they'll tell you? That wasn't us. That was Jesus. He heard our cry. We cried out to him in our distress, and he delivered. Do y'all believe that Jesus still works this way? That he hears our prayers? That he answers? If we would but humble ourselves before our God and use this beautiful privilege of prayer that he gives us, that he answers and he hears Dr. Robert Smith who's become a hero of mine who I didn't know five years ago. I met him because one of my former students decided to go to Beeson Seminary instead of RTS. And he says, Pastor L, do you know Dr. Smith? No, I don't know Dr. Smith. How don't you know Dr. Robert Smith? I said, I never took Dr. Robert Smith, right? He says, man, Dr. Robert Smith's son was murdered in Birmingham. He's the homiletics professor. He says, the hardest day in his life. He had preached at a conference. Him and his wife were in a hotel room. They had just had a great dinner. And he got a call that night that his son had been murdered. It's the hardest thing this guy has ever endured. He says, my son beat me to the grave. And do you know that he's corresponding With his son's killer. Offering forgiveness. That he's hopeful in his grief. And you know what he attributes it to? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And if you don't change my situations, oh God, you change me and I trust you, and you'll bring me home. How do you respond to this steadfast love? It's what you see in this passage. It says, let them thank the Lord. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In other words, when you taste the steadfast love of the Lord, what do we do? We worship, we give him honor and we give him praise and we extol his name and we sing how great is his faithfulness to us, amen? Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. How fitting it is to sing amazing grace. We're gonna sing a song that tells us through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. It is your steadfast love that has brought us, brought us safe thus far, and it is your steadfast love in Jesus that will bring us home. Make us a people, Lord, whose knee-jerk reaction is to cry out. We cry out because you are a God of hearing. Thank you, Jesus, for earning this status for us that the father's ear are always it's always been towards his people we bless you we love you in Jesus name amen